Welcome to Radio Free Culture from WFMU, where we examine issues at the intersection of digital media and the arts. My name is Cheyenne Homan, and in this episode, we'll be talking with Alex Winter, director of the upcoming film Deep Web, which looks at online privacy and digital rights in the context of the Silk Road case. So do you want to get started by just introducing yourself, um, telling me a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, I'm Alex Winter, and I'm a uh, filmmaker, done some acting, uh, been in this business my whole life. And, uh, I've been, uh, making a couple movies over the last few years that look at the collision between the digital revolution and law. And the first movie I made in this arena was downloaded about the rise and fall of Napster and, uh, examining the movie from a different perspective, um, than the, the common narrative uh, which had been very specific. These guys are pirates, and they tried to take down the music industry, and it was all about file sharing and piracy. And, um, and my film looks at, at the Napster story from the perspective that I saw it from, um, and I had a lot of firsthand experience with Napster, with the, Nap- the Napster company directly before it was shut down, and then I spent many years in research. Um, and to me, Napster was not really even about file sharing, nor was it really about piracy. It was about a group of very, very brilliant individuals, whether you agree with them ethically or not, that um, created a movement online and, and created the first actual community, global community online, and is a very big part of the story of the digital revolution that began to, to create seismic changes in not only industry, but also in ethics. And what is law? What is copyright law? What is what are our rights, both online and offline? Um, these are really big issues and uh, big questions, and very interesting characters that are involved in these stories. And and the second movie that I'm making now is called Deep Web, and it's about primarily about the trial of Ross Ulbricht and the uh, the Silk Road black market and uh, the hidden area of the internet used not only by by people creating drug markets, but also journalists and dissidents and a lot of people doing a lot of very important positive political work. And so again, it explores this collision uh, between the law and government and the digital revolution. And it also attempts to put forward a, a narrative that's counter to the narrative we're getting. And the narrative we're getting right now is that drug markets are bad. The deep web is bad. The dark net is bad. Anyone who wants to hide has got something to hide and is bad. Uh, and it's a very blanket uh, black and white narrative that is largely completely inaccurate. Yeah, what are some of the things that you see as being inaccurate about it? Well, the first, the first and most obvious is that, um, you know, unfortunately, it, it usually does not reflect any kind of understanding of how these technologies genuinely work. It's the same thing that happened in Napster. People didn't really understand what Napster did. They didn't really understand the technology. They didn't really understand the Internet. They didn't understand what was going on. Other than, then on a very surface level, they just saw people getting Madonna tracks for free. And they missed the broader implications of community. And, and so they missed really what became a massive movement that led not only to things like Facebook, but to the Arab Spring and to WikiLeaks and eventually to Snowden, which is this sort of liberation movement that's grown up since the birth of the Internet. That's very specific in its, in its politics, even though everyone doesn't share the exact same. Some people are libertarian. Some people are just left wing. Some people are right wing within that area. But they all 
see the internet as a place that should be free and where people should be able to have privacy just like they have privacy in their own home. And that uh, has much bigger implications when you start to get into the deep web and Silk Road case where, you know, Ross Ulbricht is facing the rest of his life in jail and who may or may not, uh, we know he had some involvement, but he may or may not have masterminded this thing. But what we do know is that, you know, things like Tor, which is a, a network that allows you to both browse anonymously and also to access the darknet, which is a corner of um, the internet that's hidden um, and inaccessible other than using specific applications and software. That arena then and Tor itself was not created so people could do bad things. It was actually originally created by the, the U.S. Navy. It's largely used by the military. It's, it's very important to journalists and dissidents all over the world in order for them to be able to communicate and get stories out and protect their sources. Um, it's primarily a force for extreme good and, and has a, a major and necessary place in, in the fabric of our society. Um, so the sort of repetitive narrative that Tor is, is and the Darknet is bad, anyone using Tor is bad and is a criminal, is is really 180 degrees from the truth. Right. I mean, all of the media coverage on Silk Road describes it as a black market for drug trade. Yeah, and it gets even more complicated because, frankly, you can also look at the drug markets with not just a negative eye. And again, the, the movie is not saying these guys are good and everyone else is bad. It's, it's absolutely not a black and white film, and neither was the Napster film. Actually, I think it's really important that we don't get black and white and that we have the sort of capacity to look at these issues in more of a gray. And you can also then say, okay, so you've got these journalists and dissidents who are in the dark, dark net, and they're good. That's understandable. We can all agree. Everyone raises their hand and says, yes, we agree. They're good. And then you get to the drug markets, and a lot of those hands are going to go down. But the movie wants you to look at the drug markets as a possible force for good as well, because the reason that these markets were created specifically, and it's very, very clear in, in the philosophies of the people who created these markets, and it's very easy to find their philosophies, especially with this trial, they're all over the place, were about reducing harm and violence in the drug trade. And that the argument was that the drug war has caused, has been an, an abject failure, and it's caused the, you know, the felonizing of of our nation. We have the highest, highest incarceration rate in the world. We have privatized prisons, which means it's incumbent upon them for profits to keep those beds filled with people. Most of the people in our prisons are nonviolent drug offenders. People are going to do drugs whether you like it or not. And the drug markets are allowing people to get to take the crime out of the streets, which studies have already shown it radically reduced drug violence statistics when Silk Road went up. Uh, and also because of the, the sort of eBay-style uh, peer review system that these drug markets use, the quality and potency of the drugs on those drug markets is significantly higher and better and of a higher quality than you get on the street, which lowers mortality rate. So these are very you know, provocative points, but they are they're inarguable. So again, it isn't to say crime is good. It isn't to say we don't need police. It isn't to say that people shouldn't be allowed to go online and you know and do child pornography or dark things, and that these these areas shouldn't be regulated and policed. But it, it does ask you to not take a very hard black and white position because if you do, you're going to be making an error, and it'll be very difficult for us to move forward with any kind of clarity and um, and make this you know make this world work better because the internet's not going away and i can tell you the drug markets are increasing with a a massive rate since the silk road was taken down they're not going away yeah and i understand that there was a second silk road launched shortly after the first one was shut down 
Yeah, and, you know, it's branding, right? So Silk Road was Kleenex, so everybody focused on the second Silk Road. And the second Silk Road, you know, all power to them, was really a minor player in this world. There are, you just hear about it because it's, it's branding. There are much, much, much bigger markets than the, than the subsequent Silk Roads that are using new, it's exactly what happened with Napster, where you shut Napster down, and eventually you get you, all these copycats, Kazaa and LimeWire, Grokster, and on and on and on. And eventually you get to BitTorrent, which uses a completely decentralized technology that is very hard to stop. And the drug markets, you know, hundreds and hundreds of black markets popped up when the Silk Road went down, not just Silk Road 2. Really, the vast majority of those have not been shut down and won't be shut down. And then you're getting into a world of decentralized markets, and that's going to be extremely difficult to shut down. So there isn't just a Silk Road 2. There's literally hundreds and hundreds of these, these markets. Um, how does anonymity factor into this, and why is it so important to the how these sites function? Well, I mean, you know, regarding how why anonymity is important um, has you know several tiers. One is why it's important to uh, if you're running a a revolutionary market online that is counter to all existing law. I think it's fairly obvious why it's anonymous uh, because. You know, you look at the case of Ross Albrecht and Blake Benthal, these people are facing the rest of their life in jail because their anonymity on some level was um, was corrupted. That's that. Then there is the sort of broader implications of anonymity. And that goes back. Well, it goes back to the beginning of human interaction. We have always wanted a certain degree of privacy in our lives. It's very, very important to a social interaction and to social well and to personal well-being. You know, the notion that's being threatened now um, that you shouldn't have privacy and privacy is a privilege, not a right, is ludicrous and runs, flies in the face of just basic human needs. Uh, so anonymity and privacy is our, is a right. I, I could do, I should be able to be as anonymous as I want online. And if I'm not breaking laws, that's fine. And if I am breaking laws, then I'm going to either get caught or those laws need to be changed, which is the world that we're currently in. And that's where we were with Napster, in my opinion. The, the laws around how media was distributed needed to be changed, and they still haven't been changed, and it's still a mess. And we criminalized an entire generation of people, I think, completely unethically. But so the second tier, it refers to me and you. It doesn't refer to the guy who's creating an online drug market. Why would I want to be anonymous online? Because there's a number of reasons. I may have uh, abuse in my history, and I want to commune with other people online in this area of the net that also um, have the, the, the desire and the need to talk about their abuse in forums um, or other aspects of their life that they don't want people to know for many reasons. It's taboo. It'll hurt them at work. They're not ready to go public with it. And so those communities exist in the dark net. If I'm a, a journalist in a totalitarian regime and I desperately need to get information out to the world, but I can't because that regime controls the Internet, then I need anonymity in order to do that so I don't get arrested and thrown in jail. So my point is that those are extreme examples. I think that the person, the people that are using it for, you know, uh, for group and community outreach is one, you know, journalists and dissidents very, very, very important and proliferating. That's one. The government needs anonymity. Um, the government does require anonymity in order to function and to help protect the country. And all countries need anonymity. The, you know, the FBI needs anonymity. The CIA needs anonymity. The NSA needs anonymity. And as much of a punch in the face as those agencies have gotten in recent years due to the revelations from Snowden, you know, they're still mostly out there trying to catch bad guys and they need 
to be protected. So that's a much broader group. And then, frankly, it just gets into the, the rights of the individual. The individual has a right to anonymity. We do not, there is nothing in our Constitution that says that we are required to walk around with some kind of identification label that's visible at all times to all people, which is what is currently being required online. And that's, that's wrong. I'm, I'm interested in how you got into this topic of research and making films about these topics. Well, it's really got nothing to do with technology. I mean, uh, I'm fascinated by technology. I think that you can't be alive today as we move from the industrial age to the technological age. The, this is the largest transition in, in human history for a very, very long time. And we're living through the birth of it. Um, so as a storyteller, how can you not want to tell stories about that? You know, it's got, it's got very little to do with playing Angry Birds or, or you know, using your, your iPhone. It's, it has massive ethical, social, philosophical, theological implications. It has implications across the board of human experience. So I'm interested in these stories because they, they strike absolutely at the heart of human experience in the 21st century. And I just don't know what could be more compelling than that, you know. And then secondarily, I find these these characters, these revolutionaries, these these technological, political activists, I find them immensely compelling as human beings. You know, they're great people to tell stories about. It doesn't matter whether you agree with them or not. I mean, I don't make activism movies. The movie isn't to say Sean Fanning was right and everyone else was wrong or Ross Albrecht is right and everyone else is wrong. It's to say this is a human being who's actually quite complex and that there are many shades of gray to this human being. Let's look at those. Yeah, so tell me about some of the people you've worked with in the filming of Deep Web so far. I mean, it's been amazing, frankly. You know, on all sides, you know, the people who are working in law enforcement and cybercrime are really smart and really interesting. You know, the revolutionaries like Cody Wilson and Amir Takai, you know, and Dread Pirate Roberts, really interesting people. You know, and I've been talking to all of them. We have exclusive access to the Albrecht family and the defense team. Lynn Albrecht, Ross's mother, is extremely interesting. And she's interesting because she sort of represents, I'd say, most of us in the sense that because of what happened to her son, she was dragged into this story knowing little to nothing about technology. And now she's become a digital rights activist, far beyond just trying to protect her son. She's an expert in the mechanics of Tor. You know, she's an expert in the mechanics of Bitcoin. She's an expert in the mechanics of digital rights activism and can speak to it and sort of the constitutional implications of digital rights. She can speak to those things on a really profound level. It's been really interesting to watch that transformation take place. So, you know, and then you have, you know, really amazing journalists who are covering the story, who are trying to wrap their heads around what's going on. You have, you know, the ethicists. You have criminals. I've been talking to, you know, a great deal of criminals who are using the internet for crime, actually most of which for political reasons, and some of whom, frankly, because they're career criminals and it's just what they do. And that's fascinating. Do you have any thoughts on Ross's trial at this point? I mean, it just started, but I'm curious as to what your perception of like how it's being portrayed in the media right now. Well, you know, how it's being portrayed in the media up to this point is... I can't really say how it's being portrayed in the media of the trial because it started yesterday. And frankly, there was such a bombshell dropped on that trial that the media really just kind of was slack-jawed and, and stunned and didn't really know what to do with it. And and I get it. But in general, I've been, I mean, I hate to say it because I'm throwing a rock into the eye of, of, <laughs> of people that I, that I love, but 
the media's response to both Napster and the Silk Road case has, has been sickening. I have to just be blanket. It's It's been lowest common denominator, no attempt to truly understand the nuances, picking up the mantle of pre-existing establishment and just basically being a megaphone for it. I mean, the that's what made me want to tell the Napster story. It was like I had so much experience with Napster first as a user and then being inside the company that what I saw being said in the press was so completely antithetical and frankly factually inaccurate that I just felt someone had to actually try to tell the true story. And even when I made the movie, people were like, why didn't you talk more about piracy? I was like, oh, Jesus. But, you know, that was the narrative, and nobody was going to veer from it. And it was wrong, and that's sad. And they missed understanding the broader implications of that technology, which in the end probably doesn't matter. But I think in this case it does because there are people's lives on online. Um, and I think that the the speed at which the media just picked up the prosecution's criminal complaints and just sort of like announce them as news is really tantamount to unethical, in my opinion. And you're dealing with someone who, in our judicial system, is innocent until proven guilty. And so it's not to say Ross is innocent or guilty because nobody knows. That's the problem. And so just to say he's a murderer, he's a drug kingpin, it's Walter White, it's, 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 just, it's just unethical. And it's slanderous. And it's prejudicial. And that guy's going to have one hell of a time having a fair trial at this point. And the media is largely responsible for that. Yeah. So what do you think might be some of the consequences or implications of the ruling in this in this trial? There's there's two parallel issues at play. There is the guilt or innocence of Ross Ulbricht and whether whatever they determine, the severity of the punishment fits whatever crime they believe he's guilty of. That's one. The second one is the how does this affect me at home part of this case. The second one involves a number of things. It involves our right for privacy and anonymity online. It involves the way the darknet, the tools for anonymity and privacy online, like Tor, like Bitcoin, things of that nature, the way they're being demonized makes it more difficult for people to have the ability to use those tools the way I was talking about earlier for good, which is necessary. That's a problem. If this thing just gets clamped down on and it's just a constant war to shut it down, then you're preventing really important things to get done, both by your own government and you're hobbling other people that need these tools. The second part of the of the digital question, the how it affects me question, involves sort of the rights issues around how the Silk Road seizure, uh, servers were actually seized by the FBI. The story they put forward doesn't actually track, so it's not that's not what they did. Whatever they're saying um, has been categorically disproven. So we don't know how they got servers, and there doesn't appear to have been a warrant. So if this trial does not require that the FBI make a verifiable explanation for how these servers were seized, and it's allowed to be, to be overruled because the judge has already thrown out the first uh, request that, that Ross's defense made to have this made an issue – then basically we're saying the, get, the government can search and seize any private American data they want without a warrant, and there's nothing you can do about it. That's a very big problem for our rights moving forward. That may be the biggest problem we face moving forward when the Silk Road case is over. So do you want to talk at all about the other people that you've worked with in the course of making the film or any other people on your team? Well, yeah, I mean, we have an amazing team. Uh, I'm making this movie I'm, be, I'm making with Epics, uh, who are great, and they've made a lot of very hard-hitting docs that, you know, sometimes have social aspects but usually involve, you know, really cool uh, dramatic stories. And then my producers are Mark Schiller, 
who was one of the major forces behind Senna and Exit Through the Gift Shop, and and then Glenn Zipper, who produced the Oscar-winning doc Undefeated. And so the three of us are really making this film together, and Dan Sweet, like my editor, cut An Inconvenient Truth and Sicko, and we have a really, really strong team. The people I've interviewed, you know, has been sort of everybody of note in this world, from the Albrechts, you know, from everybody in the Albrecht camp, to, you know, Amir Takai and Cody Wilson and everyone at, at the, from the heads of the Bitcoin Foundation, Gavin Andreessen, the heads of Tor, Andrew Lumen, even the major players at the ACLU who are dealing with technological rights online, Cindy Cohn from Electronic Frontier Foundation, who is absolutely incredible, Trevor Tim from Freedom of the Press. I mean, it's really been a wonderful ride. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Um, I don't think so, other than it's great to talk to you because I've been a, a, an FFWFMU fan my whole life, so it's, uh, it's really great to be able to, to chat with you guys. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Radio Free Culture is produced by WFMU and the Free Music Archive, and is supported in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts. Our theme song this week is The Spider-Man's Nano Loop by Uncle Bibby and can be found at freemusicarchive.org. For more information about Deep Web, visit www.deepwebthemovie.com.